Today I'm excited because we get to talk about the subject of prayer. I love this subject. What better time than the beginning of the new year to start to look down the road, no matter how windy it may appear right now, and talk about how we should pray and what should we be praying for in a practical sense as a church family. So we're going to dive right into it because i got a lot to share, a lot theologically, because we ought to have a sound theology of prayer, but also practically. How are we going to live this out? So let me start with two really great quotes that will sort of set the the table for our discussion this morning. First of all, J.I. Packer, uh, the great theologian, the author of the classic book, Knowing God, he makes this observation, prayer is the measure of a man spiritually in a way that nothing else is. And then the great 19th century Scottish preacher, Robert Murray McShane, he shared these words that are, are both powerfully and painfully true. He says, if you wish to humble a man, ask him about his prayer life. That's true. So if I could summarize those two principles in in those quotes, it would go like this. The vibrancy of our prayer life is a good measure of our spiritual health and our spiritual maturity. And yet most of us fall way, way short of what we want to be in terms of having a vibrant prayer life. And so listen, we can just, I can just, I I know I can say this with confidence because I've been in the church for a number of decades now. We all feel inadequate when it comes to prayer. We can, we can all say amen to that. In fact, I would wager that virtually every person here this morning would, would prefer to not publicly uh, uh, admit how few hours they spent in prayer just this last week, including me. And so we're in this together. Don't feel like the Lone Ranger. We all live in this gap between who we are and what we want to be in terms of our walk with Christ. We're in that together. Um, you may have heard the news. I know Stacy posted something this week about we're coming up on our 15-year anniversary at Oak Hill Bible Church, which is amazing. Um, and we'll talk about that more as the weeks go by. But it reminded me of something that happened way back in year number three. Way back, so 12 years ago. It was a much smaller body, and, and it was actually a very different body than what we have today. But in that year, in the spring, I recall um, I tried to organize a midweek prayer meeting on Wednesday nights. And um, that's when I learned just how little passion there is in the church for prayer. And I remember being so excited about it. We promoted this thing for weeks. And I got to admit, I was a little naive back in the day in this whole new church planting thing that I wasn't used to yet. But I was super excited about it. And two people came that first night. And two ended up being the largest prayer gathering that we had. It went from two to zero really, really fast. And And the whole midweek prayer meeting thing fizzled out really quickly. I figured I could just pray alone from home. I didn't have to show up at a prayer meeting. Now, my goal in sharing that is not to bash anybody. It's just indicative of the modern day church. Prayer just isn't a priority. And that could be due to a number of reasons. I'll give you a couple of them. It could be that we're just not really clear about who God really is. We don't fully believe in his power. We don't fully believe that he's good and that he's going to answer in a good way. It could be that we feel just very self-sufficient. We think, you know, I'm doing okay by myself. I don't really need to pray in order to navigate my way through life. It could be that we're not sure that God's really listening to us or that he, he cares enough to answer our prayers so we don't pray. Some of us may be confused about the whole understanding of God's sovereignty. We've come to this place where we say, well, God's so in control that there's really no purpose in me praying. It's possible that we're just cold to the things of God, that the thought of prayer never really enters our mind 
because we're just lukewarm right now in this season of life. Or maybe we're trapped in a cycle of sin. And rather than moving towards God, we prefer to put distance between ourselves and God because we're feeling the weight of guilt and shame. There's all kinds of reasons why we don't pray. But let me just say this. There's one excuse that I never want to hear from you. And I don't want you ever to accept it from another believer. And that is the one that says, I don't have time to pray. We all have time to pray. We all have time for all kinds of things that we think are really important. So so don't accept that and don't say it. It just doesn't fly. It won't fly before the Lord, and it shouldn't fly before your fellow brothers and sisters. Now, if I haven't already made you feel really bad about your prayer life, I'm going to make it worse. But then I'm going to get to the grace, so hang with me, okay? But, but first, let's lay out some things. The greatest heroes of the faith, the people that we continue to quote, the people we continue to talk about even hundreds of years after their lives, were all great prayer warriors. To a man and a woman, they were devoted to prayer. That's just a fact. And when you read their writings on the subject, you find it wasn't because they felt they were so important or they felt like they were entitled in some way to extra attention from God or extra responses. Quite the opposite. When they write about prayer, they speak of things like humility and dependence and unworthiness and thankfulness. Athanasius is a great example. The great hero of the Council of Nicaea was known to pray for five hours each and every day. Augustine once set aside 18 months to do nothing but pray. 18 months. The reformers, Calvin, Knox, and Theodore Beza, vowed to each other not to do anything in their day until they had put in two hours of prayer, and only then would they begin to teach or to write or to minister to other people. Luther's famous for saying this, I have so much to do that I cannot get on with it without spending three hours in prayer. It just marks the lives of those who have impacted the kingdom in in very radical ways. Now, do I share that with you as a a matter of just pure cause and effect? No. As if if you just did those things, then God would do this. That's not the way God operates, right? It's not a simple cause and effect. It's no guarantee that you're going to become a giant of the faith just because you begin to pray for two hours a day. But is there a correlation between the commitment of of those men to deep, vibrant, intimate prayer and what God accomplished through their lives? Undoubtedly, that's true. There is a correlation. Now, here's an important truth that those guys knew. Prayer is a spiritual battle. Prayer is a spiritual battle. Our flesh wants to do everything but pray. I think we'd all say amen to that when we think about our lives. Our flesh would rather sleep for another hour, right? Uh, Our flesh would rather be entertained for just another show. Our flesh would like to relax on the couch and chill just a little bit longer. We'd rather do something that we would say is more exciting than prayer. That's our flesh. So Galatians 5.17 tells us the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, right? And that has to be overcome by leaning into the work of the Spirit, by cooperating with the work that the Spirit wants to do in us, progressively putting to death that old man, that old person who wants all of that ease and comfort, and slowly putting on the new man who has a passion to commune with God. That's a process. That's a lifelong process that we all ought to be involved in. There's a second factor involved as well. In addition to our flesh, We know that our spiritual enemy is involved in this too. He also does not want us to pray. 
We should never forget the big picture that Paul tells us, right? That our, our struggle isn't just against flesh and blood, but it's against rulers and powers in the spiritual realms. Just because we can't see them doesn't mean they're not active. Scripture tells us they are. Samuel Chadwick, who pastored in England in the early 1900s, wrote extensively on prayer. He actually said this, and I think it's a great quote. He says, The one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. It's a great quote. So mark this down. When you least desire to pray, that's when you know your flesh is acting up. That's when you know the devil's at work. And that's exactly when you need to pray. When you least desire to pray is when you need to pray. But never expect that it's going to be easy because our hearts are deceptive, right? The Bible tells us that. We tell ourselves that we can't pray because we haven't been praying. And then we wallow in the guilt and shame over not praying. And our hearts go through these crazy cycles and we're self-deceived. And so when you don't want to pray, pray until you can pray. When you don't want to pray, pray until you can pray. And once you've started praying, pray until you have prayed. <laughs> I mean, that's a long way of saying just do it, right? But there's some truth to that. You've got to lean into this at times because it's not going to be easy and because there's your flesh and the, the devil working against you in these things. You've got to do it. Sometimes you just got to push through. I mean, I cannot tell you how many times in my life that I have pushed myself to go into prayer when my heart felt cold as a stone. But every time I've done that, I've walked away feeling like it was fruitful because God eventually warmed my heart. And when I went in thinking I've got nothing to really say to the Lord today except I'm a failure, by the time I was done, I had all kinds of praises and thanks and thoughts and requests flying through my heart and mind because God promises that he will meet us there in our weakness and that he will hear our prayers. And that's his faithfulness on display. He, he loves to show us his faithfulness in that way to meet us. His mercies are new every morning. We know that passage. He is the rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. We know these things to be true, but again, the flesh and the devil work against us. So we recognize the weakness of our flesh. We discern the schemes of the enemy, and therefore we do what? We commit to persevere to keep striving, to keep pushing. In the energy that he gives us, in the strength that the Spirit gives us, we push on and we do not give up. God's faithful. Amen? Now, before I get to the grace part, just a little bit more tough news. Let's ask the question, how do we approach God? With all of our sinfulness, our sinful thoughts, our sinful attitudes, our moral failures, how can people like us possibly approach in prayer a God who is holy, holy, holy? The short answer is we have to come into his presence with a clean heart. And as I say that, some of you are like, all right, well, count me out. <laughs> I, I, that's not me. But God makes us clean. Stick with me here, because God himself makes this whole thing possible. But let me say this. You will never have a significant prayer life without these three things present in your life. Number one, an increased awareness of God's holiness. So very important. Number two, complete transparency before God and honest confession of sin. And number three, a firm resolution to repent and pursue righteousness. 
in your life. Now, is anybody going to do that perfectly this side of heaven? Absolutely not. But friends, if you want to deepen your prayer life, this has to be the consistent disposition of your heart. Again, you won't always do it perfectly, but your heart needs to be inclined towards this by the power of the Spirit, the consistent disposition of your heart, if you want to deepen your prayer life. See, here's the thing. Sin is going to get in the way of your prayers. Sin affects all of our relationships. If you didn't know this, sin affects all of our relationships with our spouse, with our kids, with our coworkers, with our neighbors, you name it. And it causes a break in our relationship with God too. It constitutes a breach between a father and his child. Now, that doesn't mean we lose our salvation when we sin. It doesn't mean that God no longer loves us. It doesn't mean that access to his throne is blocked. That's not true. Remember, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, not even our sin. That's an amen moment. But it does mean that there's a rupture in the relationship that needs to be repaired if we want God to hear and respond to our prayers. Scripture makes this case all over the place. So this is not something that we have to speculate about. Isaiah 59, for example, God says to unrepentant Israel, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. The same truth is laid out twice in Proverbs 15. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. When we turn to the New Testament, we have this well-known promise from James. The effective prayer, finish it for me, of a righteous man can accomplish much or avails much. Of a righteous man. Peter quotes from David, from Psalm 34, For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, somebody hears that, and you're going to object, and maybe rightly so. You say, but I'm not righteous. Nobody's righteous. And we heard that over and again, righteous, righteous, righteous. But God makes us righteous so that we have access to his throne. First, you've got to be a child of God, Right? You have no access to the throne. You cannot be righteous in his sight apart from being a child of God, saved by God's grace, justified in his sight. That is foundational. If you're not there, you have no access to God's throne. But then, because we have a great high priest who's made a way for us to enter into the true holy of holies in the heavenly realms, we can come into God's presence with humility, with submission, we can come with confession and repentance, and we can know that that rupture in the relationship is instantly repaired. Instantly. How? Because God has promised it. 1 John 1, 9. You guys should memorize this verse. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, yes, we can be righteous and we can come to his throne if the disposition of our heart is inclined towards him. Don't we sing this truth all the time? His grace is greater than our sin. Man, that song is powerful. That idea is powerful, right? That's what allows us to come into his presence because his grace is greater. So unconfessed sin is going to keep you from praying, but there's more. If you don't keep short accounts with God, if you're not coming to Him often to confess sin, to repair those ruptures, know that over time that guilt and that shame is going to weigh on you. And the Scripture speaks of our hearts being seared over time. 
cauterized so that we don't feel anymore if we're not coming regularly to confess our sin. David knew all about this. You look at David's life. Man, if you want somebody to, hey, I want, I want to know somebody in the Bible who made a lot of mistakes but still is a man after God's heart. Are you kidding me? David says, Psalm 32, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. There's a physical aspect to it. My body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand, God's hand, was heavy upon me, and my vitality was drained away. This is why we have to fight through seasons of prayerlessness. We need to learn from men like David. What great examples we have. So sin is going to keep you from praying. But now here's the good news. Prayer will lead you out of sin too. Sin will keep you from praying, but prayer will lead you out of sin. This is one of the reasons why we started in Psalm 51. In fact, if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 51. Let's quickly go through the verses we we began our time this morning with in the call to worship. Psalm 51, 1 to 12. Now, I hope you were listening as as we read this morning, the power of of those verses. Because remember, David wrote this down after his adulterous affair with Bathsheba. This is a guy who made some massive mistakes. But look how he begins, Psalm 51.1. Be gracious to me, O God. So David, is, with all that sin, is coming into the presence of God. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. What he's starting with here is acknowledging the attributes of God, what defines who God is, his grace, his loving kindness, his compassion, and his power to forgive and cleanse. Apart from that, we have no place at his throne, right? Verse 3, so, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David understood you know, how far short he fell before a holy, holy, holy God. Do you, do you really know the depth of your sin? Do you really know your... Have you, have you plumbed the depths of your heart really, honestly, before God? Do you know your sin truly? If your heart was a home, would you be aware of those unswept rooms that are the doors closed and you haven't been in there in years and they're, you know they're filthy, but I don't want to go in there anymore? Are you aware of those places? David was. Do you brush off your sin or do you own it before God with honesty and transparency? Verse 4, against you, God, you only, I've sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. So David acknowledges three things here. First of all, the sinful inclinations of his heart. Second, that he has sinned against God and ruptured that relationship. And third, that God's judgment upon him would be absolutely justified because of his iniquities. But then drop down to verse 7. He says, purify me, Lord. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. He acknowledges God's cleansing is the only remedy for sin, and he cries out, wash me. 
I know my sin. I know how filthy I am. I need your cleansing. Wash me. And then we hear him ask God to restore the relationship in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. In other words, strengthen me, right? Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Lord, sweep out all those rooms in my heart that are displeasing to you. Clean them up and then strengthen me so that I don't fall back into those exact same sins. Sustain me. That's beautiful stuff. This is a great passage to meditate upon, guys, regularly. But that's how we can approach a holy, holy, holy God. Right there, David gives us that example. Now, with all that said, man, we could just camp on that forever, but I, want to, I have some follow-up questions. Let's say we, we come into God's presence with a cleansed heart. What then can we tell God? What is there, what is there actually that we can tell God? Have you ever thought about this? Oh, God, I got a surprise for you this morning. Something you didn't know. What are we supposed to tell? God simultaneously is aware of all things, all at once. I mean, it, it, it boggles the mind, right? He sees the first day of creation and the last day of this earth at once. Simultaneously. And everything in between. Because he's outside of time. But he sees it all at once, right? So what can we tell him? Answer is nothing. Nothing new. Nothing new at all. In fact, Matthew 6, Jesus reminded his audience that God already knows what you need before you even ask. So here's the other thing. God is, God is spirit that we're, we're told, right? He, that he, he is, uh, exists in unapproachable light. We, we read that nobody's ever seen him, right? And nobody can see him. So how do we speak to a being like that, right? He's holy, holy, holy. We can't tell him anything new and we can't even see him. The good news is, Scripture tells us that God is not an abstract spirit. He's a personal spirit. So what we see in Scripture is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relating to each other in interpersonal ways. They appear to be a divine counsel of, of persons. Of persons. And the, and the church early in the 3rd century, Tertullian, the North African church father, was the first to use that term, and we still use it today because he said, I see this interpersonal relationships. They're persons, right? God has a personal name, Yahweh, right, which speaks to his eternal nature. God has all the attributes of a person. Scripture tells us that he has a mind, that he has a will, that he has emotions, that he's a father who has children with whom he desires to have fellowship with in relationship. And on top of all of that, most of all, in fact, we know that God is personal because he sent his son, right, to take on flesh, to really show us tangibly who he is, to say, you want to know? I, I know I'm invisible, so boom, here you go. <laughs> we have Jesus the Son, the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He walked among us so that we can say, oh, oh, now we know who God is. We know not just about him, but we can tangibly know him. And that means we can enter into communion with him. We can enter into dialogue with him because he's personal, right? What a, what a privilege that is. We, we so take that for granted in the church, don't we? Ah, the creator of the universe. I have access to him. That's crazy stuff. But he desires it. It's, it's not like he begrudgingly says, yeah, come on. 
Next. What do you, what do you want? <laughs> no, he's like, I long for a relationship with you. I marked you out. I chose you. I saved you. You wouldn't believe what I have waiting for you. You can't even fathom it. And I want to bless you now. I've given you access to my throne. Come. And we're like, eh, I'm a little tired. Eh. More exciting things on television tonight. I mean, seriously, when you stop to think about it, you're like, oh, gish, gish. Have you ever done that, played this game in your mind? All the things I'm just going to look back at life and go, what was I thinking? This is one of them. That we haven't come to speak to the creator of the universe in the years that he's given us on the earth. What a privilege we have. So this is a huge and important principle. Just being in the presence of God at his throne is the truest goal and the greatest reward of prayer. Just being in his presence. It's not just about what we can make known to him or in terms of our requests, the things that we ask for. It's about developing that relationship. And in fact, what happens over time when we can you know, faithfully come and pray and spend time with him and dialogue and, and, and we come open and honest before him by the work of the Spirit, and this is mysterious. I still don't know how it works. Slowly, we're changed by it. We're changed. He does a work in us. Like We come to him and we're like, hey, we want all these things. He's like, just be here with me. Just talk to me. I'll do the work. That's what my spirit does. And, and we look back years later and we're like, I don't, I don't know how God did it, but I've, I've grown in these areas and I've matured. That's the work God wants to do when we come to his throne. Okay, so let's get really practical. I'm going to give you a list of of things that I just call the basics of prayer. Just the whole, all the, the how-tos, the what's, the what-nots, the basics of prayer. First one. Hopefully we're on the right slide because I'm way out of it. There we go, good. You gotta make this a priority of your heart. I mean, this, this is just foundational. You've got to make it a priority. Listen, guys, we have great examples of, in Scripture of this, beginning with Jesus himself, right? Does it not amaze you that, that God the Son, God who took on flesh, had the desire and, and, yeah, I think we can say needed to meet with his father in prayer. And if he needed it and he desired it, shouldn't we? Don't we all the more need to meet with God? In the first chapter of Mark, we read that Jesus got up early in the morning. I hate to say this while it's still dark. I hate to say that because I'm, I'm a night person. I'm not saying you have to get up before it's, the sun comes up, but he did, right? And it says that he went away to a secluded place to pray. Matthew 14, again, Jesus withdraws from the crowds at a tense moment in his ministry. He, he has to get away from the people to a secluded place to spend time with his Father. We have this great example in Paul, right, who's clearly made prayer the foundation of his life and his ministry. He was a man that was not afraid to ask people to pray for him because he understood the spiritual battle. He says in Romans 15, please strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. He needed that prayer support. But in particular, Paul gives us this amazing example of what it means to, to do intercessory prayer, to lift one another up. How many times do we read statements like this in his letters? I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers. 
How unceasingly I make mention of you. I give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in my prayers over and over and over again. Over, constantly, in all of his letters. And that brings me to a second absolutely foundational principle of prayer. It's got to be word-centered. Your prayer has to be word-centered. This is why the elders here at Oak Hill constantly exhort you to combine Bible study with prayer. In fact, I'll go a step further to put the study of God's word before prayer. To put it before, why? Because prayer is utterly ineffective if it's not tethered to truth, right? So one logically precedes the other, but they should be combined together. How can you know God apart from Scripture? How can you know His will without God's Word? How can you know how to commune with Him apart from the Bible? You can't. So if you consider yourself a prayer warrior, if you're here this morning and you're like, ah, this sermon, eh, I'm a prayer warrior. But you're pretty ignorant. You're like a, a baby infant in terms of your knowledge of the Word. you got to get in balance. you got to start making that correction. Listen, the Christian life, so much of the Christian life is constantly like balancing, right? Like, I'm getting out of whack here. I'm too, too much over here, not enough over there. So you got to grow then in your study. And if you are, you know, you consider yourself a studier of the Word and teacher of others and deeply rooted in theology, but you have very little prayer in your life, you too need to make a correction. You need to get in balance, okay? Now, one question that often comes up when we talk about prayer is the timing of prayer and the structure of prayer. Can we or should we pray just anywhere, anytime? Or should we make sure to have a quiet, structured time of prayer? And of course, the answer is, and you probably know this, it's not an either or, it's a both and, right? So we got to make sure we get this. Now, Let's talk about the balance because we have two very distinct scriptural commands on this. We got to talk about the balance. And to do that, I'm going to bring up a funny quote from Martin Luther. This is one of my favorite Luther quotes. He says, The world is like a drunken peasant. If you lift him, if you lift him into the saddle on one side, he will fall off on the other side. And his point is this we all tend to live in extremes and we all tend to live out of balance, right? We're 100% on this side. No, we're 100% on this side. And either way, we fall off the horse or like a drunken peasant. And that can sometimes happen to us in the way we come to the idea of prayer. So when it comes to prayer, we want to stay balanced, okay? It's a both and. So in Matthew 6, we have an exhortation from Jesus that we ought to have a formal, quiet time of prayer, right? When you pray, he said, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your father who's in secret. Before that, we have this great example of Daniel, right? Who did this, what, three times a day. It says, even when he was commanded by the king, you cannot do that on the punishment of death. What did he do? He went home, opened his windows towards Jerusalem, and prayed three times a day as he always had. That structured time of prayer was important to Daniel. And I think what we learn from this is that it's important to have that. A structured, concentrated time of prayer where we can withdraw, as Jesus did. And, and we should leave our phone. I said it. We should leave our phone in the other room and get away from the distractions, whatever they might be, right? Find some solitude. In some way, turn off the pressures of this world so that you can concentrate on communing with God. We all need more of that in our lives. You know that. I know that. 
The world's a busy place. It's a loud place. But we need time with our Father. So that's one side of the horse. The other side of the horse is the command we read in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray without ceasing. Right? Or Ephesians 6.18. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. So we have what appear to be competing commands here, right? Because of the privilege that we enjoy, this instant access to God's throne by the blood of Christ, and because the Spirit lives within us, we can pray anytime, anywhere, on any occasion. And I hope you do that all the time. Even as you're thinking your way through the day and acting through your day, you're constantly lifting up all that you're facing to the Lord. We have that privilege, so we should be doing that all day long. Now, here's how we fall off the horse like a drunken peasant if we're not careful. If we only practice that structured, formal prayer time, here's the error we can fall into. That we can compartmentalize our lives like this is a sacred time and all this is secular. That's a really bad error. That I walk into God's presence, pray, and then I walk out of his presence and I do as I please. It's not healthy. It's not good. All of life is sacred because you're a child of God. And if we only practice that moment-by-moment prayer, that pray without ceasing, and we don't have any structured time, it is very easy, very easy to fall into the air, becoming too casual in our relationship with God. Too casual. Like, oh, I'm praying all the time, but I don't really have that structured, quiet time where I'm dealing with deeper issues that I need to deal with. I'm just saying, hey, Lord, get me to work on time in my car while I'm driving. That's good, but am I dealing with the issues of my heart? Probably not while I'm driving down the freeway. Okay, so let's not fall off the horse on either side. Let's make sure that we're balanced and we're doing both and, amen? Okay, next one. Our prayer should be directed to God alone and not to impress other people. Jesus warned us against this. When you pray, you're not to be like the what? The hypocrites or the yeah, interchangeable terms. The hypocrites, right? For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners. Why? So they'll be seen by men. Oh, look how godly those guys are. Look at the robes and the tassels and they're saying the Shema. And oh, there's all the pomp and circumstance, right? Jesus says they've earned their reward in full, the approval of men. Good job. God's not impressed. God's not impressed. So when it's time to pray, either privately or in a group with other Christians, have an audience of one. Don't become some spiritual actor, right, that, that's trying to sound super spiritual so that everybody thinks you've got a deep walk with the Lord. Don't do it. It nullifies your prayer. Jesus says that you're going to receive that only reward is, yeah, people praying around you might go, oh, what a godly person. God is not impressed. In fact, you're a hypocrite. Don't do it. Our prayers are directed to God alone. Next thing, our prayers should be short and to the point. Now, this surprises some people, but Scripture is clear on this. It should be to the point. Why? Because God knows everything already. <laughs> you're, again, you're not shocking him. You're not surprising him. He knows everything. In Luke 20, Jesus warned, beware of the scribes who for appearance sake offer up long prayers. Again, in Matthew 6, he says, and when you're praying, don't use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be be heard because of their many words. Don't do it. God's not impressed by 
your put-on eloquence or your long, drawn-out expositions. Consider that when the disciples asked Jesus how to pray, he gave them a pretty short little outline of how to pray, didn't he? If you do the research on it, in Greek, it's like 60 words, the Lord's Prayer. Like five verses in our New Testament. I, I read it out loud and timed it last night. It took me 25 seconds to pray the Lord's Prayer. Now, listen, I, I know I said at the beginning of the sermon, I said, yeah, but there's these guys in church history that spent hours and hours in prayer. You know, is there, is there a, 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 a contradiction here? The reality is this. Because of who they were and the concerns they were facing, my guess is they probably had a slightly longer list of prayer requests and concerns than we do. I'm just guessing that, that maybe Luther had a, a more detailed list than us. So, so maybe it made sense for them. I'm just saying that you don't have to set aside hours for structured prayer in order to be faithful in prayer. And I think what we do is we set these lofty goals sometimes and, and we try to, it's like, it's like the diet on January 2nd. We try to get there and we fall short and we just go, ah, forget it. So, so prayer is something you grow in over time. So start small. You can be faithful in 10 or 15 minutes a day, honestly. And then go off into your day continuing to pray without ceasing. Honestly, that... God is not saying ours. I know some people do. Praise the Lord for that. Maybe they have a particular gift in that. 10 or 15 minutes, you can be faithful to pray to the Lord. And then, and as I said, walk into your day. When you pray, by the way, be yourself. Just use normal language and your normal voice. You don't have to speak in a certain way. God, is, God doesn't love the King James language or Shakespearean English. You know, these and thous. And all. He's not impressed by that, right? You don't have to repeat words you've heard other people pray. Just be yourself, right? You don't, you don't have to. You can use a formula or an outline. You don't have to. Right? There's no, there's no you know, compulsion in that. There's no need for some hyped up emotional vocal inflections to get God's attention. You don't have to say, Father God, every sentence. You don't, you don't have to do that. And a lot of times we do that. You know why we do that? Because we're nervous. Because again, our, we're not really functioning on that audience of one thing. We're thinking about others or, or whatever, right? You don't have to do that. Slow down. Slow down. Allow for silence. It's okay. I know we get uncomfortable with that, but it, to slow down, to let your thoughts catch up with your mouth, and to allow for silence is a really good thing. Just relax. Talk to God. Talk to him respectfully, but also as a friend who wants to hear your voice, who wants to dialogue with you, who wants to hear you come to him. And listen, if you're emotional, then be emotional. And if you don't feel any emotional, it's okay to say, God, I don't feel emotional. <laughs> Whatever it is, just be real. Be authentic before God, because again, he knows everything about you, so you can't fake it. Just be real before God. Amen? There's no right or wrong posture for prayer. You can kneel. Some people find that really helpful. It's a, it's a posture of submission. But you can stand as well. You can sit. You can recline. I mean, we, we, we tend to focus, I don't know what to do with my hands, right? Uh, you, can, you can clasp them together in this classic prayer. Every, every picture is your hands. Or you can open up your palms to God, right? My hands are open to you, Lord. You can lift your hands. All kinds of things, right? You can bow your head. You don't have to bow your head. 
You can look up to the heavens, right? Or you can even look. Have you ever prayed in church and just looked around at your brothers and sisters and said, that's just so cool that we're praying together. That's okay too, as long as your focus is on the Lord, right? You can pray out loud. You can pray in your mind or your heart. What matters most is that relational goal, right? The reward that we get from prayer, the goal of just being in the presence of God. Man, can you imagine God, you get to heaven someday and God's like, can we just talk about the way you constantly stood or, or sat or the way, you, the way you held your hands? No. No. We get tripped up on some of those strangest things. All right, let me share you, with you a really great example of how to approach God. A very simple example. This comes from Mark chapter 1. It's the story of the leper that comes to Jesus for healing, which, by the way, was a pretty radical thing in that day. Lepers just didn't walk up to other people, but this guy did. Mark 1, verse 40 says, And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him, and falling on his knees before him, and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing. Be cleansed. What, a, what an amazing picture. Okay, so what we see there is a couple other things. First of all, respect and reverence. You've heard me say it before, God's not your homeboy. Just stop it. Just stop it, stop it, stop it. Right? He's not your buddy. Let, let's get rid of that stuff. This leper recognized that he was actually unworthy. So he, he came, he wanted to approach Jesus because he understood who it was, but he felt unworthy come to, coming into his presence. So he fell on his knees before him. Luke actually adds to the story that he fell on his face as well. He came with great respect. So that's why when Jesus said, how do we pray? Hallowed be thy name. We start there, right? Holy is your name. Sacred is your name. Set apart is your name. There should always be reverence. Always. Number two, you see that he comes in faith. This is so key, right? Faith is the fuel of prayer. He says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. That leper knew that Jesus was able to cleanse him by faith. By faith, right? That's the only way that he knew, by faith. I just trust. I've heard, I've heard that you, you can heal. I've, I've, maybe he even witnessed some of the healings, but he said, I know you can do it. He came by faith. So we have to come to God in prayer with confidence that he is God, that he does hear our prayers, that he's sovereign and powerful to answer them. We, we come believing. If you enter into prayer, but the whole time you're like, God ain't listening. He's not going to do anything. Uh-uh. You shouldn't expect him to. We come expectant because we, because we have faith, right? Faith. Next. You see submission and dependence here. Not only did he believe that Jesus was able, he recognized, this is so important, his faith didn't obligate Jesus to act in the way he wanted. Oh, but my faith, you have to do something now. No. No, no, no. He didn't claim his miracle. As we hear some of our charismatic friends, oh, just claim your miracle. As if it's dependent on your faith and not the power of God, right? He didn't speak his healing into, into existence as if it ma what mattered was his own godliness. No, 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 no. He put his situation in the hands of Jesus and trusted Jesus with the outcome. If you are willing, he said. He prefaced it, right? He didn't just run up, cleanse me. He said, if you're willing, please cleanse me. 
By the way, that's not an easy prayer to pray, right? When we really want something, we got somebody, a friend or family member sick in the hospital, or we got, I mean, to say, Lord, this is what I want, but if you're willing. What an important part of what it means to pray, right? It's a humble act of submission because we recognize in that moment that it's the Lord's authority that matters, not what we want. One last question that I hear all the time. Which of our prayer requests will get a yes from God? Like, how do we figure that out? What's the formula? Like, who gets stuff? And the answer is really both knowable and surprisingly easy. Every prayer that's in the will of God is answered with a yes. And every prayer that's not gets a no. It's actually pretty simple. And someday we can, we can deal with all the tension, right, between that, that, that comes out of that, right, how, how God is operating in his sovereignty. But we know this, okay, because 1 John 5, 14 and 15 says it. This is the confidence we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, first of all, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we've asked from him, all of it according to his will. So do I have it up here yet? I don't. So God's sovereign will is the governing principle in answered prayer, his sovereign will. And it's still, yes, it's true that what James says in James 4.2, that sometimes we don't have because we don't ask, Again, how that works in the tension of God's decree and, and, and our responsibility, those are, those are deep questions for another day. But James says it. Some, look, you could have had this. It was in God's will. You didn't ask. Or he says you don't receive things because you've asked with the wrong motive. So that's important as well. But the sovereign will of God reigns over everything. He's going to answer yes or no or later based on two things that you, you are not, omniscient and good, he is fully omniscient and fully good, so we want only his will. Man, repeat this truth in the mirror someday. We only want what God wants. That is the land of safety. We should be very glad that we don't get things that aren't good for us. True? I know that's hard. You're like, oh, I know what's best for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Be careful with that, right? You only want God's will for your life. Trust me. All right. Two quick ones last. First, I'm, I'm going to repeat this one because this is such a huge part of, of what a vibrant prayer life looks like. Honesty before God. Transparency before God. It is so important. Stop lying to God. Stop omitting things before God. Stop acting before God. Just stop it. Listen, God should be the one person in your life. Now, look, we all have spouses, and we want to be absolutely open and transparent. Now, we all have spouses, my bad. <laughs> but the, some of you are like, wait, what? Oh, that was a slip. We, so those of us who have spouses, am I red? I'm red. Those of us who have spouses, we're like, that's the person we're most open with. Can I tell you that with God, we should be even more open? There is not another person that you should bear your soul more to than God. Even in its ugliness, again, you're not going to surprise him. You're not. God's like, I've never seen that before. <laughs> no, you're not going to shock him. So don't let the enemy turn you into Adam or Eve. You know, I'm hiding from God behind a fig leaf. 
right? It's silly. We want to run to God, not from Him. God's like there with the, like, right? with the arms wide open, like, I know. I know what's going on. You don't have to hide. I mean, we all laugh at the story in the garden. Oh, they hid from God. <laughs> and then we turn around and do it. We should be able to bear our souls before God. God's long-suffering, and he's patient, and he's merciful for his children. If he's justified you in his sight, you have nothing to fear, nothing to fear in coming to him. Lastly, I'll just, and I'll just reinforce this one. Don't give up. Be persistent. The enemy's going to try to discourage you. I've told you in advance. He's going to try to discourage you, so resist him. Don't beat yourself up. I'm so inadequate. I'm so bad at this. Keep pressing in. It takes time and patience and experience to grow in this discipline. But if you will just enter in by the power of the Spirit, you will taste and see that the Lord is good every single time you go to Him. Okay, I'm going to wrap up now. I know we're running late. Because um, I want to give our church family a chance to immediately practice some of these things in 2022. Some really practical things. I want to give you and it's going to be quick, I promise, seven things that you can be praying for for Oak Hill Bible Church in 2022. Seven practical things. And, and I'll try to explain each one of them briefly why I'm bringing these up. But this is not just me. This is from the elder team as well. These are things that we talk about, we pray about all the time. Here's the first one. You can pray for greater spiritual maturity in our body. Greater spiritual maturity as a whole. Here's the thing, you guys. We do many things well here at Oak Hill. We really do. Our community, our service, our care for one another, our hearts are knit together in so many exemplary ways. But I'm going to say this. We're also a very young church, age-wise. And so we as a body, as elders, we look out and we say, we are in need of developing more spiritually mature leaders and teachers and counselors. For the future. The church always needs to be replicating itself, right? Its leaders need to be replicating and, and, and raising up the next generation. And potentially the next generation of leaders is in this room right now. But there's some work to do to get there. And we want to be a part of that as elders to help to disciple and train. But we need to pray for greater spiritual maturity across the entire breadth of our church family. It's a great prayer. Number two is this, greater purity in the body. Greater purity. Guys, in a world of ever-increasing darkness and depravity, you and I are called to shine as lights. We're called to shine as lights. And that requires being more and more set apart from what's happening in our world. And I'm speaking in particular about things like pornography and about other forms of sexual sin that are rampant, especially in younger generations, absolutely rampant. And in the church, that stuff is devastating to our worship and it's devastating to our prayer life and it's devastating to our spiritual health and to our collective body life here at Oak Hill. This is something we need to be praying about. Let's pray against this evil, that it not break through the walls of the church, that it not be in here. Let's pray for growth in purity across the breadth of our body. Amen? Number three, more mutual discipleship. So we got a great elder team. we got a great women's council. 
They're godly folks. They love to disciple. They love to, to be involved in your lives. But we do have limits in terms of our time and resources. And that means it's imperative that all you guys take on this mantle of discipling one another and counseling one another. It means you guys figuring out a way to meet with one another, even apart from the elders or apart from leadership, just to say, hey, look, you guys, let's get together for real Bible study. Let's get together for real prayer support. Let's get together for real accountability. That should be happening all over our church body, and it can be done. You just got to get a desire for it to say, you know what? I need these things in my life. I know two or three others that need it as well. Let's get together. That stuff should be rampant across our body. So let's pray for that. Amen? Number four, a bolder mission mindset. When it comes to our harvest field, we all need to get bolder in these days. It's time. The days are evil and time is growing short. The world is confused. People are scared. They need hope. So let's pray that God would make us bolder that he'll give us more opportunities to witness for Christ, that we take the steps necessary to get trained, to say, I need to turn more conversations towards gospel things. How do I do that? And then how do I get more bold in those conversations so that I'm not, I'm not timid about it, I'm not afraid anymore, but I enter into those things. Scripture says that we need to pray and ask God to send workers into the harvest so he can bring in his elect. We want to be a part of that. So let's pray for that. God will answer that prayer. That's according to his will, true? Number five, continued unity in our body. Unity. Listen, we've come through a very difficult season of church life. There's a lot of churches out there that have gone through harder things than us. We have been relatively untouched by things like conflict and disunity and gossip, and I praise God for that. But listen, as I've said a hundred times, things are going to get worse here. Things are going to get darker. California's going to get more difficult. The enemy is going to keep throwing things at the church. It's coming. So that means there will be a greater temptation for us to divide, to fall into conflict, to take hard political stances, to demand our own preferences, to judge other people, and yes, to criticize and grumble against leadership. We cannot have it. We need to, know in adv- we need to pray against it in advance so it doesn't squeeze its way in the door. God has been faithful to protect us. Let's keep praying in that direction that whatever comes at us, that we remain united as one. Amen? Finally, last two things. Two really practical things. The first one you're going to laugh at. We need more older families. (laughs) Okay, what do I mean by this? Listen, this is so funny. Oak Hill has the exact opposite problem of almost every other church in America. (laughs) They're all trying to get younger. We need more gray hair. And listen, we love our students to death. We love, it's a privilege to minister to students and to young families. And, and you young families, you're doing great with the babies. Way to go. <laughs> it's great. But we need some older kids. We need some teenagers. Listen, we have a really vibrant youth ministry in this church and great volunteers that love the kids. We just need more kids. So we can pray to this end, right? What does this entail? Pray for new families that are moving into Santa Clarita, that, they would, that God would direct them to find Oak Hill and to visit so that we can reach out and love them. We can even pray for fa- older families with teenagers that, I'm, I'm just going to be blunt here, are sitting in the back of a church somewhere in a big church and they're not serving at all. 
They're gifted, but they're not serving. They don't have a place to serve or whatever that God might move them over to a smaller church where they can put their hands to work in the building up of the kingdom. But we need older families. Can we make that a a point of prayer this year? And then lastly, and this is probably the most obvious one, for our future and hopefully more permanent gathering spot. Uh, We're really grateful that Masters has been so kind to us here and opened up their doors. But there's coming a time, and some of our students know this, and some of our older folks know this as well, when we're going we're gonna to have to leave. Right, Stephen? <laughs> no. I mean, they, look, they've said, hey, you guys are good 2022, but there's coming a time when they're going to say it's time to go. Okay, and we have to respect that. So where are we going to go? Well, let's start petitioning God now. Let's not wait to the crisis. Let's start petitioning now that he would show us where our next stop is. Let's pray that maybe it's somewhere more permanent that we can put down deeper roots. But here's the thing. No matter what God shows us, if his answer to that is no, we'll just meet in the park. And, and, we'll, and we'll be fine because the church is the people. Right? It's nice to have a building, but the church is the people. Okay, quick challenge. So, in light of that, and if you guys want it, you can take your camera, you can shoot those seven, seven prayer requests. Uh, I'm such a techie. <laughs> I found out there's a camera on your phone. That's basically it. Okay, I am looking for a prayer team. I'm looking for a prayer team to join the elders to pray over these seven things over the next 12 months throughout this year. A group of people that are committed to praying for these seven particular things at least once a week, 52 times in a year, that's all, to lift these things up. What if, you know, what if we got, I mean, 50 or more people to do that, right? I mean, the numbers are astounding. 2,600 prayer requests before the Lord over things that, that matter to the life of our church. What if we... We just continue to ask the Lord, petition him humbly, according to his will, and just kept asking for these things. So I'm asking for if you're willing to be a part of that team. What I want to do this week is start a new band on the band app. And if you're interested in being a part of this and you want to pledge to pray throughout 2022 for these seven things, I want you to join the band and then we can have some interaction. I will I'll post monthly updates about how we see God answering these prayers, and you guys can share about how you're learning and you're growing through your more consistent prayer life, it could be a very vibrant community on this prayer team. But imagine if we, imagine if we all did this. Imagine if we, again, we're not going to manipulate God in any way, right? God, God isn't obligated to respond to us, but he wants to hear our prayer requests. He tells us that. And if he's willing, if he's willing, it'll be an awesome experience. We'll look back a year from now and say that was an awesome experience. And if he's willing we will see great fruit that he's produced in our lives and in the life of this church. So more details to follow on that this week. You can take a photo of that. I'll talk to Stacy, or, or we'll somehow get these seven things posted somewhere so that you can have them. And then all I want you to do is you can send me a text, send me an email, and just say, Jeff, count me in. I'm on the prayer team. And we'll get that band going and we'll get it rolling. Amen? I'm excited. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the fact that even right now we are... We are joining our hearts together and we are focusing our attention upon you, the God of the universe, knowing that you have welcomed us in, that you want to hear from us. And Lord, we, like David, we, 
We know our sin. We know our transgressions. It is always before us. And yet, I'm so grateful for Christ that by his blood, you hear us right now. By his blood, we can come and we can say, Lord, we have needs and we have requests. But the greatest need and request, Lord, is just to know you more. And so we count that a privilege to be at your throne even now, Lord, to know you better and to communion with you. So Lord, thank you for time this morning and, and just talking about prayer. Lord, I pray, if you're willing, that you would do a great work in the life of Oak Hill in terms of our prayer life this year. We want to commit that to you. So work in our hearts. Direct us if this is the right commitment to make, the right pledge to make, to be on this prayer team this year. And Lord, may you do sovereignly whatever is best. We, we take that responsibility off our shoulders and we lay it before you and say, God, do what you know to be true. Do what you know to be good. And we will rest in that. Lord, thank you for loving us the way you do. We praise you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.